Everybody, tonight I'd like to welcome a special guest and a uh, an old good friend of mine, author D.A. Roberts. We grew up together and have known each other for probably close to 40 years. Yeah, in that ballpark. One of my first dungeon masters uh, taught me uh, all this crazy stuff that's uh, brought me to where I am today. So uh, without further ado. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome friends to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. DA, if you would, we'll hand the mics over to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, as well as you already know, but I was born here in Lebanon, and uh, I grew up here until uh, I think it was just after kindergarten. We moved to New Mexico for like eight years, and came back in the first part of junior high, and that's when you and I met. Right. Uh, we started with the uh, the D and D nerds club at, at Lebanon Junior High, playing between classes in a homeroom and crap like back that. Back then, nerdy was not cool, folks. That no, was, no, that we was, were that we was were the thing. We we were certainly not the cool kids in the no, class. No. If you've ever seen season one of Stranger Things, that was us. That was us. We were that, just talking. Yeah. All, all, the only thing that, that that was not us is not one of, one of us didn't get captured and taken to a shadow dimension. That's <laughs> other than that, that was pretty well us. Eric and I have uh, mutually assured destruction on each other of many many embarrassing stupid stories. Indeed. And uh, I'm sure you remember back in junior high when I would write those really terrible short stories because they were. <laughs> Looking back at him, he, he was I, always over in the class and had multiple notebooks and, and fanning out. And, you know, I never knew if he was working on a and d mission or homework or writing one of his stories. And, you know, here we are fast forward many, many decades later, and I'm sitting here at the table with a good friend that's become a professional author. Well, I'm semi-professional. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife has to keep me in check sometimes. I'm, I, uh, yeah, I, I try to keep it as professional as possible. But uh, yeah, I've got 25 books out now, uh, which is a long way from crappy short stories in 1982. Very nice. But uh, you know, I've got uh, one. One's a collection of short stories, but uh, the rest of them are all novels. Uh, and one book I co-wrote with an author named Kat Dahman. Uh, she lives in Texarkana, Texas. She's really good. Uh, that book's called Cold Hunger. Uh, but I've got multiple series out. I've got a zombie series out called the Ragnarok Rising Saga, which is set just in this area, mm-hmm. uh, Springfield, Lebanon, Lake of the Ozarks. It's set all over that area. Uh, I've got another series. It's called Apex Predator. Uh, it's a kind of a Native American's twist on the werewolf story. Um, and they're, it's a group of uh, Native American dog soldiers that have the ability to change into, into werewolf, into wolf form. And they hunt dangerous monsters that hunt people. Uh, I've got another series that's called Codename Wild Hunt. Uh, it's about a, a military group that hunts monsters. Um, you're sensing a theme here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another series is called Lakeview Man, and it's set down around Kimberling City, Missouri. It's about a small sheriff's department that, you know, one day had a dangerous Bigfoot attack start killing people. And it's how this little bitty tiny department had to deal with it. And now more crap is showing up in the successive books, and they're still trying to kind of struggle to deal with it uh, because it's a small department, you know, maybe 20 people, and suddenly they're dealing with a major problem. Uh, I've got another series. It's called The Nightmare Hunter. If you remember, and you can tell by my hat here, my uh, 
Kolchak, the Night Stalker hat. <laughs> I, we grew up watching that show. Yep, yep. Fantastic show. In fact, we, uh, we, we on weekends we would stay up until two o'clock in the morning when the old reruns were on. Went up and upstairs of my house over on Monroe Street. Yep. Uh, Remember it well. The uh, the Parmafe episode, the Spanish Moss Murders, still my favorite. Uh, but that was, was such a great series, and uh, the I wanted to do something that was kind of in that vein. And uh, the Nightmare Hunter is a an internet reporter that started looking into some of these monster stories from my other books. It's kind of a nice little crossover. All of the books are interconnected. Every every series I've got connects over to the other series. Uh, And to me, that just kind of creates a a much larger picture. I'm able to tell a far more encompassing story by bringing all of these books together. And sometimes details that are critical to the other series don't even happen in that series. You've got to really kind of read all of them. And there's a timeline on my website that shows you what order to read the books in. Um, And if you read them in that order, you will discover that even though those are separate series, they're really all telling one big story of how things are getting I'm I'm reminiscent of a lesson you taught me as a DM. Always leave them wanting more. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. You always got to leave them wanting more. Uh, you can't let them get bored. Uh, I, um, years ago, you remember when I went into that, that Mickey Spillane kick for the longest time I was reading mysteries. Um, I read an interview that Mickey Spillane did and they asked him when you're, when you're, when your stories are starting to bog down and you need to spice it up, what do you do? He goes, well, that's easy. I just have a couple of thugs kick in the door and beat up the main character. And I took that to heart. (laughs) So if the story's starting to slow down, I just start a fight. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it generally keeps the books, yeah, it gets the action going right back, right back where it needs to be. Uh, but it's just, I, I took that lesson to heart, and it's 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 one of the uh, the guiding principles. If things get too slow, start a fight. And it it, it worked in D&D, too. Yep. You know, when you guys yep. would start you know getting too focused on details, I'd throw a monster at you. And that's just how I ran my D&D. It was uh, like an interview I, I listened to on, remember Roll uh, Up? Um, uh, Rock 99 out of Springfield back when it was sure. the, the station. They used to do the the heavy metal hits at night. Mm-hmm. And they did a live interview with Alice Cooper one. And Alice Cooper said he wants one of his concerts to be like a painting by Salvador Dali. He wanted people to look at it and go, well, I think I saw this and I know I saw that. <laughs> and But they got to go back and look again just to be sure. He said, I want my shows to be that way. And he referred to it as total shotgun rock and roll. And that is exactly how I've told my D&D stories, how I write my books. It's just shotgun rock and roll, folks. I, 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 I want to present the information. I want it to keep going quick. I don't bog it down with too many details. And uh, it, it's worked out very, very well so far. I'm, I'm starting to develop a pretty good fan base. Now, some of our followers on our Facebook page, you may have saw I shared about a week ago, kind of as a teaser without the information that DA would be joining us today. But I listed some of the books and we'll put some links and everything in there for anybody that is interested. So you can go and check out these books, purchase the books. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of kind of throw it back over to, to DA, but one of the things that you have talked about, obviously these are subjects that's near and dear to your heart have oh, yeah, been for absolutely. decades. Now, um, for people looking to buy your books, I mean, I assume they just go to all the regular Amazon and then. A- Amazon.com has everything that I've got. I, I, I'm a, I, I'm a independent publisher through the Amazon uh, uh, Kindle platform. Okay. Uh, but what all would my be your books, preferred method? Uh, all of my books, uh, you can find everything easily just at daroberts.net. There you go. Uh, and everything's there, including my podcast, uh, the timeline of the books there, including my merchandise store. I've got Ragnarok Rising t-shirts and Codename Wild Hunt t-shirts. And, and DA was telling like us he actually has his own uh, live broadcast that he does twice a week. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, we'll put the links and everything in to be able to find all of that. Yeah, the show's called D-A-X Machina. I wanted something that uh, that alluded to my to my literary literary world, and the the term uh, you know you know you know uh, the uh, Deus ex machina, machine of the gods, is what it means in Latin, and it's an old writing trope about how guys would write themselves into a corner and sudden suddenly basically a. a a beam of light would come down from the sky and it would save the main character for some reason. <laughs> uh, and we've seen it in TV shows, like on the, the remember the A team where nobody ever got hurt, yep. no matter, despite the fact that there were a million bullets, million bullets flying ever, no wounds whatsoever. Yeah. Nobody ever got, nobody hit. ever got shot. So that's basically at Deus Ex Mach. And, and I, I, I just wanted to do something that was kind of a play on that. And then I threw my first initials in their DAX Machina. Okay. Now, one of the things I wanted to kind of loop back around is you mentioned like one of the tales or the books that you've got is a, a small uh, group with a Bigfoot encounter and it's a mm-hmm. police department. If you would tell us a little bit about your uh, personal background, uh, because obviously you have been in law enforcement. I, I spent the better part of 20 years in law enforcement in one uniform or another. I, I was with the Green County Sheriff's Department. I was also a reserve deputy with the Christian County Sheriff's Department. Uh, I, as a commissioned deputy, I uh, ran the overnight security for Cox South uh, for several years, um, in one capacity or another, I've been in, been in uniform for most of my adult life. Um, and I, I loved doing it. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, my back didn't. And, uh, so thanks to, thanks to that, we kind of had a parting of the ways, uh, a mutual and, understanding. Exactly. Of the, you know, it, 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 uh, agreed not to put me in a wheelchair and I agreed to stop wearing body armor. Um, we were visiting on Facebook earlier this week and and DA and I have decided, I, I, I don't want to throw Bill into this, but you know, we at least are getting old and we're recognizing this. Our <laughs> no, body not, is reminding us of this. No, I, I feel that every day, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you sound like a, a bowl of Rice Krispies when you get out of bed in the yeah. morning, snap, crackle, pop. Into your morning. That's right. Well, I um, kind of want to turn the focus on, in particular, the dog man. And I'll be honest, when uh, we talked, and, and I wasn't real sure what a dog man was. So maybe if you could kind of educate our, our listeners out there a little bit with some of your research. And, and I know you hold a, a certain position in a, a local dog man. Uh, just kind of share some of that information, if you w- wouldn't mind. Okay. Well, uh, for, for people that aren't familiar with what the dog man is, I'm sure everybody's heard the term werewolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've all watched you know, the old cheesy Lon Chaney movies and you know, the howling and, you know, all, all of the werewolf movies down through the years. Um, but the, the original lore behind the werewolf was a person that changes into a wolf at the time of a full moon. However, a dogman doesn't do that. A dogman is in that form all of the time. Um, there's Native American lore dating back since long before European settlers ever set foot on this continent. Uh, Christopher Columbus and uh, and Marco Polo both wrote of dog-headed men on their journeys. Met, uh, seen, uh, saw them on uh, on islands. Uh, of course, you've got the the uh, the Egyptian god Anubis, which was pictured with the head of a head of a jackal. Uh, the condition is called cynocephaly, and uh, you can Google that. Um, don't ask me to spell it because <laughs> I probably couldn't do it without spell check. Uh, but it's called cynocephaly, and it, it, it it's a particular case where they they talk about people with the head of a dog. Um, so it's not a new concept. Uh, the, the, uh, the Choctaw Indians talked about a war that was fought for territory between clans of Bigfoot and clans of these dogmen. Uh, there are stories that date back uh, that just talk of these dogmen creatures that go back centuries. In fact, some of the first recorded encounters with dogmen in the United States that were documented were by French trappers that were trapping the Tennessee River Valley. Uh, of course, they referred to, referred to it as the Loop Guru because that was their 
which is the French werewolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that was the only thing they had to associate it with. Of course, you've got the Rougarou out of out of Cajun legends, uh, but the Dogman is has been cited for a long, long time. And uh, it's it, there. There are a lot of documented cases. Uh, there are a lot of cases that are I don't know if you'd call them apocryphal, but no official quote unquote. See the air quotes there. No <laughs> official documentation exists, but witnesses still come forward. Um, and uh, it's it's just a it's just a very dangerous cryptid. Now, um, with the dog man, is that something that's believed to be hereditary? Like it would be passed on? Is it a curse? Are you born with it? Is it a bite that transfers? Well, it's it's not so much like the like uh, like the old werewolf stories where you you know even he who is pure in heart says his prayers by night will become a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the moon is full and bright. It, it's not like that. They're it, it, it's. Uh, some believe it's just a secondary race, a different race of creatures. Uh, and the, you can't really just say, oh, that's, that's BS, that couldn't happen, because there's just way too much lore backing it up. I mean, even the Catholic Church backs it up. There's one of the saints, one of the Catholic saints, I believe it's St. Michael, is known as the dog-headed saint. Google the dog-headed saint, and you'll find pictures of this guy in full Catholic raiment with a head like a wolf. Wow. Uh, it, it's been documented, and documented down through the centuries many, many, many times. Uh, so I, I, I firmly believe they're out there. I, and uh, I, I'm uh, the, the Midwest director uh, for the North American Dogman Project. And you can check that out at NorthAmericanDogmanProject.com. Uh, it was founded by Jody Cook, uh, I think about 20 years ago, uh, as he began looking into more and more of the Dogman cases. And um, it's it's pretty compelling. I mean, if you go to the go to the website and look at some of the evidence they've collected, they've got We've got canine canine tracks, bipedal canine tracks that are you know obviously it's two legs, and we the the ruler next to it shows this canine print to be more than eight inches wide. Tell me a dog that gets that big? Wow! I mean the picture's got a ruler next to it. I mean you yeah, can look at yeah. it for yourself. That it is more than eight inches wide. That's a big dog. Well, I I had mastiffs. I mean I, we we near ma- that. No. No, and that's about as big as dogs get. Yeah, Bill and I have talked a lot, you know, and, and of course he's a huge Bigfoot fan. And, oh, yeah. You know, there's the, there's the believers and of course the non-believers. And, and to your exact point, it's, you know, a lot of people's like, oh, Bigfoot. There's no, you, nobody's got a body. Nobody's got this. But again, the stories are just so vivid, so recorded, so long in time, you yeah. can't deny it. Well, before we, we started recording, you were talking about an incident in the land between the lakes. Mm-hmm. If you want to recount that. Sure. Land Between the Lakes is a uh, area, uh, it's a national, part of the National Parks Registry. It's called a public use area. It's right on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky. Uh, and long before it was known as the Land Between the Lakes, it was known as the Land Between the Rivers. Um, and, 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 and dating back centuries, that area has been known to be a very weird place. The Native Americans referred to it as a cursed land. Uh, and people that have lived in that area for more than a hundred years have all told stories about these dog, these dogman creatures in the area. And in 1963, President Kennedy uh, signed a uh, signed a law that allowed the Tennessee Valley Authority to dam those two rivers to create the the lakes that are on either side of of uh, of the land between the lakes. And it even now, even though it's basically an island. It's a huge island, and it's all covered in forest land. And uh, there's a lot of weird stories. A lot of people have disappeared in there, and many of them had been, been that have been found were reportedly killed by wild dogs, quote unquote. 
Uh, you know, how many freaking packs of wild dogs are roaming the Tennessee woods? Um, and so, I mean, it's one thing to have a pack of, you know, wild dogs, but seriously, how many of them actually go and attack a group of people or whatever, mm-hmm, you know? Exactly. And, and, and even now, I mean, this year, I think there are eight people that have gone missing in land between the lakes. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the numbers are there and anytime you look into it, there's always, yeah, if you find an obituary at all, it disappears. Uh, we were, we were doing some research on the area and a lot of the original, uh, disappearance stories even vanished from the internet. Like somebody's purposely scrubbing them. Uh, but the, the big story that everybody's familiar with out of land between the lakes, uh, allegedly happened in 1982. There was a family of four out of Chicago was camping there and they had just arrived and were, were leveling And back in those days in 82. It's not like modern RVs where you hit a button and it levels itself. Right. You had to get out and you had to hand crank the levels and it was Put all a block of hand. wood here or there or right. rock or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it was, it wasn't something you just hit a button and it, it did it itself, which that's convenient as hell, but <laughs> <laughs> I, but the, uh, the old, the old ones, the old school ones, you had to do it manually. So apparently the, uh, the story, as the story goes, uh, the, the father and the son, and the son was about eight or nine, um, got out to level the RV while the mother and the daughter were still inside. And sometime during this, this leveling process, one of these dogmen creatures came out of the woods and the descriptions are that it basically dismembered the father all but tore his head off, tore an arm off, tore the guy completely up. And the boy ran for the RV trying to get inside. Well, it caught the kid before he could get to the RV and basically just shredded him. Well, the the mother barricaded the door trying to keep it out and it got in. Uh, and all the, all the, all the accounts say that the mother fought like hell, uh, defending the daughter. Uh, there was the most damage done and the most blood splatter from the mother. She fought like hell to try to keep that thing from getting her daughter. Uh, but the daughter was about three. So short time after the attack, another couple is driving by in a car and they see the, the carnage out in front of the RV. And of course they, you know, no cell phones back in the day. They had to drive several miles away to find a phone where they could call the, call the police. Police arrive on scene and they immediately think that this is like a slasher attack. There's just so much damage done. And they start checking the crime scene and they're cording the area off and they're bringing in law enforcement and coroners from all over the place. And they only found three bodies. And they didn't even know there was the fourth the little girl until they started checking the RV and found clothes for a small child, a small girl. And at that point, they thought they had a missing child. So they fanned out, went out into the woods and two highway patrolmen were walking beneath, beneath a canopy of trees looking for by flashlight. And one of the officers reported hearing something like he thought it was rain tapping on his hat. And uh, he's, he's like, oh, crap, it's going to rain now. We're going to lose any of the tracks we had. And he looked up and the raindrop hit him in the face and it was blood. And when he shined the light up, they found the little girl about 30 feet up the tree having been fed on. There were no low branches where a person could have climbed up the tree. Obviously, it was something capable of scaling a tree. That's hard to explain. Yeah. Yeah, the branches were all, you know, 10, 15 feet up at least. And, uh, you know, they found the little girl, well, she'd been fed on. And they brought in elements uh, of the military from, from nearby Fort Campbell. And apparently they took over the area, kicked everybody out of the area. And people that lived in the area reported seeing helicopters going over the area all the time and while the military was there. And eventually they shot one, shot and killed a, a dog man. And people uh, reported seeing a helicopter lift off with something large in a cargo net. They couldn't describe what it was because it was late at night. and Far distance. Yeah, and yeah. distance. Yeah. But they saw the military take something out in a cargo net. 
flash forward not long, all all uh, reports, all documentation, everything about this story disappears, completely buried. Uh, investigators looking into it are getting stonewalled. Uh, a few guys got told by non guys who wouldn't say what part of the government they worked for were told to back the hell off. Jody Cook, the founder of the North American Dogman Project, just happens to run into those two highway patrolmen who were, were under the tree, and they tell him the whole story. Uh, official accounts don't exist. You cannot find it anywhere. But those two highway patrolmen, one of them died of cancer, and the other obviously you know, died of old age, because this happened in 82, and they were active law enforcement in right, 82 right. when we again, were kids. two very reputable yes. sources. No reason for them to lie about right. something like that. Uh, you know. One of them was a deathbed confession. He was dying of cancer, stage four cancer, and told the story. So I give a great deal of credence to the story from those two officers because they were there. And Jody pursued that to, to great length. Uh, and here, and actually last last July, July 2021, uh, I went to LBL, uh, spent several days uh, and nights wandering around LBL, sometimes alone, which was probably not very bright of me. But, <laughs> um, and then I met up with another guy from the North American Dogman Project, Nick Valente, who uh, he's the, um, the Region 3 director, which is like New England states. And we met up and the two of us ran around LBL and come to find out after this incident happened, the parks department went in and bulldozed all entrances to that campground and took it off the maps because we had a, a modern day map and we were looking uh, for this. Some campground might consider this it. a cover up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why, 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 if you've got a place that's supposed to be there for fishing and hunting and camping, why would you bulldoze off an entire campground? Well, they did. And, uh, we couldn't find it. Because it wasn't on any of the modern maps. Um, so I mentioned to a couple people, I actually mentioned on my podcast, that uh, we were unable to find it, even though we knew we were in the right area. Uh, because one of the landmarks is an old cemetery called the Nickel Cemetery. And we were able to find that. So we knew we were within half a mile of, the, of where this campground was supposed to be, yet we could not find it. I, I mentioned on the podcast that uh, we were unable to locate it, and a guy that lived that area his whole life sent me a PDF of a map of LBL from 1982, and we found we found it. Uh, so I'm planning a trip back to LBL, and I'm going to live stream from that from that campground. Very cool. Uh, we're, we're probably going to do that this summer. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not going back alone this time. Uh, <laughs> when my wife, my wife didn't know the story of LBL when I talked her into going. And uh, we stayed at a uh, resort across the canal from LBL. And she stayed over at the resort while I went across across into the LBO by myself. And after she heard the story, she goes, you're a moron. You're not going back <laughs> in there alone. Very interesting. Now, when we do this podcast, we always try to bring these stories home a little bit. Uh, are there any anecdotes from here locally, let's say, in Missouri, in the Ozarks region? or? Well, um, funny you should mention that. Uh, I wrote a short, a couple of short stories, actually, that I called The Beast of the Lake. Uh, and these were these short stories were based on stories that I was told. Well, Eric remembers when I, when I got my license and I had that old beat-up piece of crap white Ford pickup. Yes, that thing was the biggest piece of crap, but I took that thing everywhere. <laughs> I probably drove all over the four-county area around Laclede County, just stopping and talking to people. And the first I heard of the Beast of the Lake was from two old guys 
that were sitting on the front porch of that old country store in Sleeper. The store's gone now. Yep, I remember that. We would stop there and get sodas. You yep. went with me sometimes. Yep. We would yep. just stop and talk to random people about You were lucky, some pop rocks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, st- I stopped there one time. I was out by myself, and I stopped there, bought a, bought a uh, back then, a glass bottle of Coca-Cola. And uh, I came out on the porch, and I asked these two guys. I said, do you guys know any like weird Bigfoot stories or monster stories from around this area? I, I, I collect stories of folklore. And uh, they looked at each other and looked at me, and they said, son, you go back in that store and buy us one of them soda pops. We'll tell you anything you want to know. <laughs> And um, no better investment have I ever made for the price of two two uh, two bottles of pop. Those old guys told me stories going back before the Great Depression of weird stories around this area of of guys that were ran out of camps of, uh, and the one that they talked about was sightings of a what they were described as a werewolf because nobody I hadn't even heard the term dogman back in you know eighty six. They described it as a werewolf that had been sighted along the Osage River. That is now Lake of the Ozarks. And uh, he said, the funny thing is, is after the lake filled, the stories kind of died out. You didn't hear them anymore. But through digging and talking to people, I've heard several stories from up around the Montreal area, Montreal, Missouri. That's not Montreal, Quebec, for those of you, <laughs> you listening to the show. Mon- there's a little bitty town. Itty bitty little Podunk town, as we would call it yeah, in Missouri. Yeah, we used to call it a poking plum town. You poke your head out the window and you're plumb through you're it. You're plumb through it, yep. <laughs> uh, it, Montreal is not, it's not civilization by the the, the, the the term most people understand civilization to be, but it is technically a town. But uh, Now, are these accounts that you're hearing, I know we were talking, there's obviously a difference between Bigfoot and, and Dogmen, but they seem to be more violent. Dogman encounters are always more violent. Uh, the words most commonly used when people describe a dogman encounter are either demonic or hellish. They, uh, they talk of being hunted. They talk of being stalked. Uh, there was one case near LBL of a guy that woke up a two-story house. He lived just outside the park. And uh, he woke up one night and his dog was going nuts. Um, and it was like trying to get him out of bed. Uh, so he goes downstairs with the dog and he had a dog door in the kitchen to let this dog out. And I guess it was supposedly a good sized dog, like a German shepherd. Uh, well, he goes in, flips on the kitchen light and a dog man is halfway through the dog door trying to get in. Wow. And, uh, he unloaded a shotgun on it trying to, and it ducked back out and took off. Uh, and I, I guess right then and there, he got aboard and put, you know, covered up the dog door. <laughs> the dog didn't go out at night after anymore after that, but. Dogman stories, you know, are, are just like that. Uh, there, there are no accounts of dogmen being friendly. Uh, you get all these stories sometimes that people in the woods will say, you know, I got lost in the woods and a Bigfoot showed me the way out. Or, you know, uh, my car was stuck and it pushed me out. I've heard a few of those. And I don't know how apocryphal those stories could be. Those <laughs> might just be somebody's, you know, spinning a yarn. But you do occasionally get a peaceful Bigfoot encounter. Not the case with Dogman. We we shared one. I, I got a chuckle on one of our previous podcasts. It was Ed and Lorraine Warren that mm-hmm. we were talking about. And yeah. Lorraine Warren yeah. had a peaceful encounter with a Bigfoot, uh, a psychic connection, if oh you will, that, that we well, shared. I'm sorry. We have yeah. the, the one in Alaska where the, the Bigfoot brought the little girl out of the woods and you know, to, brought her to safety yeah. with her people. Yeah, so. she doesn't belong here. You know, she's yeah. back with her people. Um, now, Dogman encounters, are they – I mean, do – I'm going to assume they're primarily in the country and out in the wilderness. Do, do they see them in more developed areas ever? Or I have had several stories of people that saw them at the edge of town. Uh, in fact, there was one that was actually uh, one dogman story in particular that I find particularly interesting uh, was in L.A. 
Wow. A, one of the most populated cities in the country. Uh, apparently, it followed the L.A. River into town, and they saw it going through garbage cans. So, you know, they, they, it's not just a local phenomenon. It's not, it's not anywhere centralized to the United States. In fact, I've even got dogman stories that I've collected from Australia. Kind of like Bigfoot has been seen on, on, on every major continent. Yeah. Dogman stories seem to come from everywhere. Wow. Now, if you could, could you give us a general size, dimension, description of what most dogmen sightings are? I mean, are they five foot, they eight foot, you know, muscular, skinny, I, slender? I've heard stories anywhere from five to eight feet, sometimes even nine. Uh, those are the rarer stories. My own, my own kind of personal story runs a little, runs to the nine foot size. Uh, and I'll tell you about that one here in, here in a minute. Uh, but, uh, the dogmen are usually described as lean because most dogs aren't fat. Wolves are muscular. They're not, not necessarily heavy. And, and dogmen tends to run like that. They, they're, they're described as muscular. Uh, and most of the time they describe them with what is called digitigrade feet, uh, which are like the back hawks on a dog walking up right, with right. legs like that. Uh, plantigrade are like ours. Uh, human feet are plantigrade feet. Bigfoot has a plantigrade foot. There are rare stories where you'll hear of a dogman encounter where they claim it had plantigrade feet, but 90% of them it's digitigrade. Okay. Now, you obviously said it's not a werewolf. It's not a shapeshifter that's human part-time and, and whatever. It's believed right. that that is like a race. Mm -hmm. um, so you wouldn't ever see one like with partial clothing on like you would the werewolf's type right. scene. They're always going to be out in the wild, not trying to mimic or blend in just sometimes – our cities and their territory overline, and well, you find them digging through trash cans, that kind of stuff, right? We're also encroaching farther, far, farther out all the time into 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 wildlands, and you get these guys that uh, that uh, will go with just a map and compass and take off trail. And some of these guys have some interesting stories. Uh, Les Stroud, uh, you guys know him as the yeah. Survivor mm -hmm. Man. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a number of Bigfoot stories from when he's been out in the in the boonies. And I consider him to be pretty credible. In fact, one of the videos he posted on his show, uh, he was alone in Canada. And when I say alone, I mean miles from anyone else. Uh, just him walking with his camera talking. And as he's talking to the camera, you can see him. And he didn't even notice it until they went to the editor. He's walking along talking about, you know, this, this, the, the plant, the plant life and stuff. And he's got to build a shelter for the night. And he passes a section of trees and about 20 yards behind him, you see a dark figure step out from the trees and take off. And it's running on two legs. It's obviously not a bear. And it's pretty clear. Uh, you can, you can find that footage at less, just Google Les Stroud Bigfoot and you'll find all kind of inform information on it. But Les Stroud's had some interesting encounters. Hmm. Yeah. He's somebody, and, and I, you know, I guess he had a, like a finding Bigfoot season and mm -hmm. uh, of his show, but yeah, I would, I would say he'd probably be pretty reputable. I Absolutely. Mean, yeah, if less is coming forward, I, and I, you know, I, I would give it a lot of credibility. But you know, the thing about both Bigfoot and Dogman sightings is um, it's not like when we were kids. If you ever saw anything on the news about Bigfoot, they were interviewing some guy with two teeth left and a pair of overalls only yeah. fastened on one side. Yes, saw that Bigfoot, <laughs> and he stole my hog, and he was running down the road. I it, thought he was going to drink my beer. That's right. <laughs> it, that, those were the only guys you ever saw interviewed on TV, but. In in current times, I mean, not only from the age of social media, but the simple fact that you've got all these shows like Finding Bigfoot and 
you know, you got all these these shows on on different networks about Bigfoot. It's really become more mainstream, and a lot of people have become more comfortable coming forward. It's more accepted. Yeah, Definitely. it's more accepted to say much you had like a Bigfoot Dungeons story. and Dragons, right? Very much so. <laughs> but it, you know, used to, if you said you had a Bigfoot sighting, I mean, you know, people thought I was crazy when I talked about Bigfoot, and I didn't care, and I still don't care. Right. Uh, but you know, there are more people coming forward. I mean, I'm not talking just you know Joe Sixpack driving down the road anymore. We've got judges, lawyers, law enforcement, border patrol, uh, people in in professions where. They know that th their credibility is everything for their career, yet they're still having these encounters and they're feeling more and more comfortable coming forward. Uh, a lot of them have waited till they retired to come forward with their stories. I know a couple of judges that waited till they were no longer sitting to come forward with their, with their stories. Uh, doctors, lawyers, professional people are coming forward with Bigfoot and Dogman stories, and it's happening more and more often. And it's not just a case of, you know, somebody saw something. We've got casted prints. Uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum out of the University of Idaho has made huge strides in identifying track morphology for Bigfoot tracks. And he's he's the guy I would go to that can tell you if a, tra a track is fake or not. It, you know, if you got a, a print that looks like it was made with a piece of a block of wood, you're not going to find the morphology that you would find in a footprint. He's identified what they call the mid-tarsal break, which only exists in primates. We don't have the mid-tarsal break in our foot. The mid-tarsal break is basically when the foot goes down and starts to come up, there is a hinge in the middle of the foot that Bigfoot possesses that we do not. Hmm. Uh, so it makes their tracks very unique. Uh, and so what Mel how Meldrum put it was, if you find one of these tracks that has the mid-tarsal break in it, 20 miles from the nearest town, the odds that a guy with, with a PhD in primate track morphology is out there hoaxing track, <laughs> yeah. hoaxing prints is pretty low. Yeah. Pretty slim. Pretty slim. Because it takes a lot of knowledge to know how that foot breaks down. A couple questions, and you were starting to get into this one. What type of evidence do we have of the dogmen? Obviously, we have footprints. Mm -hmm. Do we have any fur or There's been a remains, of possible bones, anything like that? Well, the, the funny thing is, is, is you and I both spent a lot of time in the woods. Mm -hmm. um, did you remember a time we ever saw uh, the bones of a bear? No. It's, about like, a, how about it's a like the pigeon, you know, right. the phenomenon. How many times have you saw a baby pigeon? Well, I've never saw a baby pigeon, but there's there's grown pigeons. We yeah. see those every day. So, yeah. 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 Uh, it's the same with, with uh, a Bigfoot or a Dogman. Uh, nature is really efficient at disposing of corpses. Uh, anything that's dead in the woods for any period of time within three to four days is probably scattered. Uh, scavengers will tear it apart. The bones get scattered. And then you get your bigger predators like wolves that will break the bone down and actually eat the marrow out of it. So big bones become little pieces of bones and little pieces of bones get scattered. Yeah. So it doesn't shock me that we haven't, haven't been able to identify a, 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 an intact skeleton. And of course you've got people that say, why don't we have it in the fossil records? Well, look how many humanoid skeletons that weren't human have been found. I mean, hell, even recently they found that oh, one yeah. they called a hobbit. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, so they're finding Not documented uh, anywhere. Along right. the path. They're say, finding some of these primitive species of, of humanoid. You might have one example Mm -hmm. to, to indicate that that whole lineage ever existed. Well, so, in, yeah. In the case of Gigantopithecus, which we know Gigantopithecus existed, it's, it's you know, it's scientifically accepted. We did the, an entire podcast on the giants and stuff, yeah. But the only evidence that has ever been found of the existence of Gigantopithecus was a few teeth and a piece of a jawbone. Yeah. 
and that's it. What about tufts of hair? I mean, like Bigfoot, we've, we found mm-hmm. alleged yeah. tufts of hair. Ha- has anything been found on a dog man that would signify a difference that, hey, this was just the neighbor's dog compared to this is a little bit unknown or an unusual? There have sample? been a number of uh, uh, sampled, uh, not only of fur collected from dog man sightings, uh, but, uh, but feces, scat. Mm-hmm. And when DNA tests are done, it usually it comes back either a, a subspecies of wolf or unknown canine. Uh, Which so there have been reason. there have been tested test, uh, testing done uh, in Bigfoot cases. Uh, Dr. Melba Ketchum did a, 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 a an analysis of DNA samples collected across the country, and her finding was in most in the cases that proved out to be you know not just a known animal. When she did the DNA on, it came back, the, the, the nuclear DNA came back, human parent, unknown, unknown parent. That at some point, you know, there, there was some human in the Some of the, the dots mix. are there, but not all the dots right. are there to connect. Uh, uh, the best they could say was near human. Not human, near human. Hmm. And then if you, got, you uh, look at certain books, like uh, if you look at Them and Us, uh, it's a book uh, by a guy named Danny, Danny Vendramini. Uh, Them and Us is a reevaluation of the Neanderthal. And when they did a forensic reconstruction of the Neanderthal skulls in this book, what they presented versus what they used to show is basically just being, uh, you know, human in furs, which everybody knew was probably wrong. Uh, but the forensic reconstruction that Danny Vendramini commissioned on Neanderthal bones came back looking very much like a modern Sasquatch. It's pretty terrifying. I mean, if you if you Google Danny Vendramini, them, them and us, and look at the images, the pictures are pretty frightening. Now, another question. It kind of seems to be at least similar to a Bigfoot in the form of you don't really see them in packs. Is, is that a safe assumption? Are they more loners? Or have there been accounts where they came across a little pack of like dogmen? Uh, there was a case uh, that's known as the Siege of Lockett Ranch, uh, which allegedly happened back in the 1940s uh, outside of Taylor, Mississippi, where a family tried to stand their ground uh, and fought a year-long fight against a clan of dogmen on their year property. A year-long fight. They fought to hold their property. They were losing wow. farm animals. Their house was being attacked. They fought for a year to try to keep their farm, and they eventually had to give up. Wow. They lost, they lost their farm to a, a clan of dogmen. Hmm. What about like their shelters? What is like a Sasquatch and Bigfoot? I know obviously they would use caves, overhangings, but there's been kind of some new studies that they believe they may take uh, branches and make like huts yeah, for like a better nests. grass nests. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, weird nests have been found all over Northern LBL. Um, they, they just basically, you know, if you, uh, look at, uh, the Jane Goodall documentaries, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, she documented these nest structures that mountain gorillas make mm-hmm. very similar. Also, uh, if you look, I don't know if you're familiar with the missing 411 project. Yes. Uh, yeah. the missing 411 is fantastic. And I love the fact that David Polites does these stories, but never says what he thinks did it. He just presents the information and lets you draw your Here own conclusions. Yeah. But if you look at. The map of the clusters of the missing people and, and the missing 411 cases, because most of them center around national parks. And mm-hmm. I'll get to the national park thing here in just a second. Mm-hmm. But they, the most of the clusters of disappearances happened in and around national parks. But if you overlay that map with the map of known cave systems in the United States, they they correspond almost perfectly. Yeah, I've seen that visual before. So. 
we've talked about that quite a bit on on my podcast too. But and some of the some of the big disappearances are along the Appalachian Trail, and then you've got that entire network of caves they call the Mammoth Cave Network, which runs from Tennessee to Maine. Now you uh, referenced a personal encounter that you were going to touch on. Uh, yeah, I, I think you get a, an interesting story, and you can look at the video on this. Uh, about, I want to say, a year and a half ago. No, maybe it was, maybe it was right around two years. My friend Steve Monrodis and I, and my wife Annette, and his wife Rachel, we were going to go out to dinner one night. And this was when I was writing writing the book Lakeview Man. When I was down in in uh, in Kimberling City area, I was doing research on that area. And uh, we were getting ready to go out to dinner one night. I mean, we, we do that from period, from time to time. We'll just take off and go grab a steak or go out for drinks. And, uh, you know, Steve's like, Steve's not going to be my best friend. And uh, we, we, we'll play Cards Against Humanity and play <laughs> D&D and stuff, you know. Good just, times, good we, times. We have, a, we have a ball hanging out together. Uh, well, Steve's a, Steve's a nurse and ex-law enforcement himself. Uh, and so we were both carrying, which is not unusual. And there is an abandoned campground down by Kimberling City called the Joe Bald Recreation Area. And it was closed. It was property of the Army Corps of Engineers. And it was closed back in 1999 or 2000, right in that area, uh, after a number of disappearances happened uh, in, in and around the park. Uh, in fact, uh, I found eight people that went missing wow. associated with the park. And, and more on that here in a second. Yeah, you're going to get a kick out of this. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to set one of the scenes in this book in this Joe Bald Recreation Area. We were getting ready to go out to, we were actually going to drive down to Branson and go out and eat anyway. I said, why don't we go down to Joe Bald and shoot a promo video for Lakeview Man? And Steve's like, well, that sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> so we, we all hopped in my van and we drove to the Joe Bald Recreation Area. And of course we went at night. It was like nine, like nine o'clock at night. And um, so we, I hop out and Steve's filming me. On my on, on my cell phone, it's just a cell phone video. We we uh, we had no plans of going down there looking for Bigfoot or anything like that. Although we were joking about it, uh, but the plan was to go down there and shoot a couple minute video as a promo for Lakeview Man, talk about this abandoned creepy ass campground down there, and um, and just shoot a couple minute video. Well, we shoot the video. Don't think anything. And again, we're both armed, and I was a deputy at the time. Uh, we don't see or hear anything, um, you know, nothing really creepy. We shoot this video and we hop in the van and head into Branson. We went to Outback Steakhouse and had a good time. Didn't think anything about it. I get home and I go to upload the the uh, video to my YouTube channel and I'm watching the video in more detail because when I watched it the first time, it was just on my cell phone. Yeah, a little tiny screen. Yeah, a little tiny screen. Yeah. Didn't pay too much attention yeah. to it. I get it on my computer and I'm like... Okay, that's freaking weird. I am start seeing eye shine in the background. And then you and I both know, you go out in the woods in Missouri with a flashlight, yeah. you're going to get eye shine. Yeah. You know, raccoons, owls. Possums, whatever. Possums. You're going to get eye shine. So first when I see the eye shine, I don't pay any attention to it. Then I start realizing it's not real close to the ground. So that rules out possums because they're not big, big tree climbers. It doesn't rule out raccoons or, or, or owls or anything like that. But I'm noticing that these, these eye shine are pretty high off the ground. and um, I'm, you know, I, I, I slow the video down. And I'm looking and I'm like, okay, there's eye shine in several places. There's not just like one eye shine. I'm like, okay, well, that's just creepy. You know, don't think anything more of it. You, know, you got eye shine. We in were not alone. Right. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was animals in yeah, there. Okay. Yeah. It could have been a deer. It could have been anything else. You know, I'm just, at the time, I just blow it off. So upload the video. It, it sets on YouTube for the better part of a year. 
you know, gets a few hits. And it's just, like I said, it's just a promo video of me talking about Lakeview, man. That's all it was intended to be. That's all I thought it was ever going to be. Uh, I mentioned it on a podcast that I was doing at the time. Uh, I was doing it with a buddy of mine. And I mentioned the video and he goes, well, why don't we just show the video? Because I was talking about that old creepy park and the book. And he's like, you got footage of that, that creepy ass park? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, let's just show it. So we pull the YouTube video up and we show it on the podcast. And one of the guys in the audience goes, hey, you know, he sends a, you know, sends a chat. He's like, hey, something moved. And I'm like, bullshit, nothing moved back there. Sorry, I hope I didn't, didn't break the barrier. No, there. no, no, no. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, no, it ain't nothing moved back there. I've watched this video a hundred times. And he goes, no, I'm telling you, slow it down and watch this one spot. So I'm watching it and I'm staring at it and I go, oh, holy shit, something did move back there. <laughs> and I'm like, because it's not real clear. It's a cell phone video and it was like 30 yards away from me and in the trees. So I've got a, a couple of buddies that are, that they're, they're video game designers and they're really good with image technology. Uh, Josh Jones and Adam Shepard. Uh, so hopefully they give those guys a shout out. Uh, check those guys out at alltowermedia.com. Those guys are awesome. But I sent the video to them. I'm like, hey guys, tear this apart because I want to know what the hell that was. All I saw was something move. There's a point in the video you see me, I'm talking and I've got one of my duty flashlights. It's like a, like a 3500 lumen bright ass search flashlight. I pan the flashlight across and you see it go whoop back behind the tree because it doesn't want to get that bright flashlight in the face. And when the flashlight pans away, it kind of comes back out. And that's really all I could see on that little cell phone video. Well, Obviously, they, most deer and stuff aren't going right. to do that. They're going to be like deer, frozen in the, in the headlights, so to speak. There's a reason the phrase is like a deer in the headlights. Yeah, yeah. Deer will like, oh, you know, like if I don't move, it doesn't see yeah, me. Yeah, they won't see me. Uh, but this moved. It reacted to the light. And at the time I thought, okay, well, you know, what, what could it be? You know, I, I'm still not thinking cryptid. I mean, I'm, even though I'm a big into Bigfoot and Dogman <laughs> guy, I'm not, I'm thinking there was nothing there. I didn't see anything. Something moved. I don't know what it is. Uh, so Josh and Adam had the video for about 24 hours and I get a phone call from Josh and Josh goes, are you sitting down? I said, yes. He goes, okay, open the, open the document I'm about to send you. So he sends me these files, and the first picture I bring up is straight up the head of a dog, a dog-like creature leaning out from behind this tree. I mean, you can see it. I mean, plain as day. Now, what height approximately? I know you said it's like well, 30 yards. we didn't yards, know at but, the time. Okay. We did not know at the time. All we knew is we had something with the, with the head of a dog leaning out from behind the tree. The next image I open, you can see its hand on the tree below the head. It's leaning out from the tree with its hand. You can see the claws. Bracing itself. Yeah, it's braced itself against the tree and leans back out. And then he sent me the slowed down and enhanced version of the video. And you can, as you can watch the video, and we've got the the breakdown of it on on my channel as well. You can watch this whole breakdown. You see it lean out and lean right back behind that tree. You can see the movement. I, I'm sure you're familiar with the, uh, M.K. Davis, who's done so much work with the uh, the uh, Patterson-Gimlin footage. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I had M.K. Davis on the show, and I sent him some of the images, and he goes, I can't say for sure what it is, but I can tell you there's something there. He says, I can tell you for a fact there's something there. I just, it's a cell phone video. I can't clean it up enough to tell you what it is. He said, but I can tell you for a fact there's something there. So we go down there, broad daylight. We find the exact tree. I want to make sure that I can, that I don't, I want I'm the kind of guy, if I can dispel it myself, right. I, I'm never going to present it as evidence. I go down there and I'm looking for bushes. I'm looking for anything that could have leaned out behind this tree. 
Uh, so we go back down there in daylight, find the exact tree. I'm, I, I can take you right to it. Uh, we find the exact tree. There's no bushes there. There's no branches that low on the tree. All the branches are like, like 15, 17 feet up. So there's no branches at that level. There are no trees close enough to that tree for it to have been that. There's nothing that could have moved behind nothing that tree. Nothing the wind could have blown to simulate anything right. close there's to that. There's nothing that was behind that tree that could have moved. So we did a side-by-side picture comparison and discovered that whatever was leaning out from behind that tree was about nine and a half feet off the ground. Wow. Uh, it's a big boy. That's a big uh, boy. So at that time, I was not involved with the North American Dogman Project. I was just doing my own research. Uh, so I got in touch with Nick Valente from the North American Dog Band Project, and I sent him the footage. And he sent, he he got back with me within within just a few hours. He goes, "That's one of the best examples of a Type Three Dog Man I have ever seen." And I'm like, "Holy crap!" I didn't got even know you had it. You said for like a year, like a year, almost a year and a half. <laughs> oh we didn't goodness. even know we had this footage. But you can go to you know, my da da Roberts author uh, channel on YouTube. And those videos are there. You can watch the original uh, original video that we did no editing to, and then we've got a breakdown video where you can watch the actual st- breakdown of the of the video where it's moving, and you can look see the stills because the stills are up there as well. So it's it's all there. Uh, you know, there, no enhancements have been done to make it look like something's there that's not. All they did was play with play with the contrast and the lighting to bring it out. And anybody that knows me knows I'm not tech savvy enough to fake a video. Uh, I'm the guy that has to hand my cell phone to my kids whenever my email doesn't work. So th- this video and I, and I, when you look at video evidence, you always have to be skeptical because it's so easy to fake things with Photoshop and video shop. This is the only video I can say with a hundred percent certainty. It has not been doctored. I was there. We did not doctor this video. It is what we what we found. And I tell you, when I first saw that first picture, it was like somebody took the back of my shirt, pulled it out, and dumped a pitcher of ice water down my back. I was like, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> so you said there was an example of a type three mm-hmm. dogman uh, encounter sighting. So what what is the definition of types? Like when, uh, They believe there are as many as seven different types. Uh, this is based on eyewitness reports, different different structures there there are ones that look uh almost primate like with the pronoun like a mandrel with a pronounced snout uh which may actually be a type of bigfoot called a gugway and uh, a gugway means face eater uh so the 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 types of dog quote unquote dogmen that have been reported that look look ape like are probably a misidentified gugway uh however the other types they range in types from looking like your classic werewolf story to I'm looking almost like they've got the head of a, of a German shepherd. It's all about uh, how there's some of them uh, like the, they've been described as chest and shoulders being very human like and others they've described the chest and shoulders being very dog like how a dog's chest is different than right. know, it's more you know, yeah. point comes to a point. So the, there's there's several different types and I wish I uh, had some imagery with me. But I can send you the pictures. There's pictures of of what the what they believe the seven types look like. Yeah, we can I'll, always share that on our Facebook page. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll send those to you. Yeah, if I was at my computer, I'd have a whole crap ton, a crap ton <laughs> of images. But you know, I, I, I was not prepared with video with with images for the day. But right, I'll, right. I'll email those to you. But you know, they believe there's many as as possibly seven types of dogmen. Hmm. It's a good question because I was wondering if it had to do with the size, possibly. Well, and, and I was thinking UFO encounters, you know, uh, of different kinds. You know, the close encounters of the third, third kind. So it, yeah. it's 
your your exposure, you know, what level of encounter. Yeah, well, there's, so, there's no cases of yeah. dogman probing anybody. <laughs> <in my knowledge. laughs> yeah, so again, uh, I think we talked before we got started here, my exposure to the, the, the dogman thing started with the Michigan dogman video. And, and even that video, like you said, I, you know, I've seen it dozens of times and, and I kind of flip flop back and forth as to, to how, you know, is it real? Is it not? You know, it, it's one of those things. And, and, you know, you can look online and see lots of these videos. So, I mean, this is, this is all across the country. You said that, uh, mm-hmm. and they have documented sightings like in, in other countries, you, you talked about Australia and stuff like that. So this is a worldwide phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And, and we go back in historically speaking I mean, things like the Beast of Javaldin, which I, I would assume you've heard of. The werewolf attack in France? Yeah. I mean. I mean they believe it may have killed as many as 100 people. Yeah. So we're we're talking, you know, this is, again, it's, it's a much bigger phenomenon than I was aware of when we first well, started talking about this. And like the Beast of Bray Road, I believe it is. You know, there are several stories that could mm-hmm. been misidentified, or at least in my mind, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the term dogman. And so, like you were saying, there's a lot of cases that we have actually touched upon upon the show. We didn't realize we were addressing possibly dogman sightings. And, then, and like, then you, you said there were correlations between like Bigfoot and then dogmen too, even. Well, so. they, they seem to be competitors for the same resources. So a lot of times, if you get a Bigfoot story, if you look into that area and talk to people from that area, you may, may find dogman stories in the same area. They, they do definitely both hunt deer. Uh, you know, any large mammal like that. Uh, I mean, look, look at, let's like take bears, for example. Okay. Uh, let's say you and I both are familiar with black bears, Eric. Mm-hmm. Uh, black bears are pretty omnivorous. They'll eat berries. They'll eat roots. They'll eat termites. They'll eat meat. I mean, if they're an opportunist, opportunistic, if they find roadkill or they find a dead animal, they'll eat it. It's not uh, beyond them. Yep. Yeah, or, you know, and if they're getting really hungry, they might chase down, chase down something. Or if they get an opportunity to take out a deer, they'll take it. Uh, they're opportunistic, but they're, they're omnivorous. They'll eat just about anything. Let's move up the food chain a little bit. Let's go to grizzly bears. Grizzly bears eat far more meat than the smaller ones, but they still will eat berries and omnivores and hikers and things like that. <laughs> uh, you know, they're opportunistic. Go back up the food chain another step. We get up to the polar bear. Polar bears were are 100% carnivore. They don't eat plants. The only, uh, the only close, to, the only, only time they get close to being a plant eater is when they get the occasional vegan that gets too close. Uh, they are meat eaters, and they do not drink Coca Cola no, like the TV shares. No. And here's something that that should worry folks: uh, there have been more and more cases coming out of Alaska and out of Canada of polar bears interbreeding with grizzly bears. Yep, yep, I've seen that. And That's scary. Those are terrifying because you don't know what it's going to do. And if it's got the attributes of the of the polar bear and the grizzly bear, it's going to get big. It's going to get really it's get big. big and it's going to get ugly. Not necessarily in the descriptive aspect, right. but encounter <laughs> aspect. So, and you can take the same the same extrapolation if you look at Bigfoot and Dogman. The colder the climate, the more protein they're going to need to survive. Um, so, the farther north you get, you're going to get the more aggressive ones, like the Alaskan hairy man, which reportedly. Well, hell, the Alaskan Triangle, more people have gone missing in the Alaskan Triangle yep. than just about anywhere else we per capita. Just dropped a like podcast on the Alaskan Triangle. 35,000 people have gone missing in the last 50 it's years. It's insane. Uh, the Alaskan Triangle is not someplace I would go unarmed. Because if you go out there you know, armed with a, with a can of bear spray, you're probably going to uh, come out as bear scat that smells like peppers. 
You mentioned something early on in the podcast, and and obviously I'm sure it's it's not well documented because it's so old. But uh, Indian legends talking about Bigfoot and dogmen feuding mm-hmm. over territories. Oh my gosh, why have I never heard of this before? That that is horrific, beautiful. I mean, you could do so much stuff, you know, with that. But, but they're, they're do you know any more information on what area that was in? What? Northern Georgia. Northern Georgia. The Choctaw in that area in Georgia and up into the Tennessee River Valleys talked about dogmen and Bigfoot clans competing for resources. Uh, in in uh, LBL today, they have uh, a couple of herds of buffalo and they have a large elk population. And every once in a while, if you listen, because these elk, these buffalo are closely guarded. They keep an eye on these. This is, this is a, a herd they're trying to grow. And once in a while, they'll say, wild dogs took out a buffalo. A buffalo um, is a huge animal. I have been yeah, right up next dogs. to a buffalo. Yeah, they're, they're not small. I, I went to buffalo farms. Actually, <laughs> my uncle and aunt uh, knew some people that owned a buffalo farm on the way out East 32 to, mm-hmm. to Falcon. I remember that. We used to buy some of that meat. Uh, these things are huge. Big I, animal. I can't imagine a group of dogs. Yeah, we went, yeah you'd, need a, you'd need a group of dogs like a pride of lions to take down. <laughs> we went to Yellowstone when I was younger, and, and yeah, we got kind of in the middle of a herd driving down the road. And yeah, I mean, those things are bigger than the car you're in. They're like tanks. So they're, they're huge. And then you get cases like up in Alaska where they'll find moose that have been ripped apart. You can't tell me that's a dog. No. Oh, moose uh, It's going to take something food. grizzly bear size or bigger to take down a moose. Same with a buffalo. You know, and there are no grizzly bears in LBL. Just straight up, there are no grizzly bears. And I'll tell you something weird about when I was in LBL. And uh, you, like I said, you and I spent a lot of time in the woods. How often have we been out in the woods and not saw any animals? Oh, very rarely. There's okay. always sound. There's little critters, squirrels, and yeah. In northern LBL, the entire time I was in northern LBL, day and night, I never saw a single animal. Not one. They say that's obviously a sign. Yeah, a sign. Uh, yeah. uh, I didn't even see roadkill. Now, go across the canal into Grand Rivers, there were deer coming up to us in our campground. Uh, there were deer everywhere, and that's just across the river. So, there, obviously, there are animals in the area, but in LBL, I didn't see a damn The, the LBL, Land Between the Lakes area, mm-hmm. you had mentioned, have you want to word this, the alleged or cover-up information that was, mm-hmm. that was covered up. What, why do you think that would be? That's a huge tourist area. The city of Grand Rivers that's just out of northern LBL, they make the 90% of their money in that area from the tourist trade. People coming to – they're big bass tournaments on those lakes. Uh, there are people that come there to ski and fish and everything. The, the campgrounds over in Grand Rivers are far more popular than the ones over in LBL because the ones in LBL are primitive. Uh, they're no, or bulldozed. Or bulldozed. Uh, they're, they're not they're – not, uh, they're not – where you can pull in and get sewer hookups and power. These are primitive campgrounds. Right, right. I mean, you know, you're not going to get anything. Actual camping. Yeah, True. rough camp, yeah. camping rough. Without satellite. And, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so most people that are, well, you know, that want to camp in a, in a comfortable camper and have their, have their television and their power don't camp over there. You, the only ones that do camp over there are generally people that are used to camping rough, like hunters and stuff like that. Um, there's some pretty weird places in LBL. There was one place I went to called Demumbers Bay, and um, that that was a that was kind of an odd area. It was very quiet. It was beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It was very beautiful, but the woods were just oddly quiet. 
I mean, I walked back into the woods for quite a little distance and I didn't see so much as a deer. And when I was walking along the shore of the, of the lake, I didn't see a deer track, not one in the mud. Hmm. And I was down at Moon Valley two days, three days ago. And uh, I were deer tracks and raccoon tracks right there along the, along the river, but not an LBL. I didn't see any. Now, how big of an area is the lane between the lakes? Yeah, Do you have I any wanna, idea? I want to say it's 250,000 acres or Huge something then. like that. Okay, it's yeah. massive. It's not like it's a little hundred mile. No, you know, no. It's not like Bennett Springs State Park right, where you can right. drive across it in five minutes. Yeah. It spans two states, Tennessee and, and Kentucky. Hmm. And it, 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 it'll take you a good long while to drive from one end of the park to the other. And Sweet. it's all heavily wooded. I was going to say, part of our trip to Tennessee, when we visited my in-laws, we, we drive through it on the interstate, you know, and it's, you see all the signs and it's, the water's right there, right next to the interstate the whole way. It's kind of creeps me out because honestly, if you lost control of your car, you'd be, you'd be in the lake. Yeah. Uh, I was wanted to bring up something about when I was talking about the Joe Bald Recreation Area. Steve and I started pulling research on that place after we shot our video down there and found that that it had been closed after a number of a number of disappearances had been reported. Uh, since the year 2000, because camping is so at a premium around Kimberling City, all the campgrounds there are generally always full. It always struck me odd why they would close a nice campground. Right. That's it's completely overgrown now. Right yeah, there. It, it, the, but the Army Corps of Engineers shut it down. And every time the city of Kimberling City has tried to reopen it, the Army Corps of Engineers has shut them down. So Steve and I found eight different disappearance stories associated with that, with Joe Bald. A year later, I went back to look for those stories and they were all gone. Hmm. I couldn't find one of them. Uh, but I talked to a buddy who was a Stone County deputy. And in my books, I refer to it as Sloan County. I don't call it Stone County, but it's Stone County, Missouri. Uh, I had a buddy who was a Stone County deputy and uh, I was talking about Joe Bald. And uh, he said, well, that's not the only one. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, there's another one on the other side of the lake. That another the, campground. Another campground called Combs Ferry that the Army Corps of Engineers shut down. And it had a working, it had a marina. You know, it was now, what huge. Gives? Why would you shut these down? This, this doesn't uh, make sense. Well, here, it gets even better. They didn't just shut it down. They bulldozed the entrances. You can't get a car in there. Wow. And you know for a fact what property values are at Kimberling City. Oh, yeah. Lake of the, uh, uh, Table Rock Lake. Table Rock Lake, yeah. Why would they bulldoze off two campgrounds with probably 150, 200 acres of, of lakefront property, lake front property and not yeah. let anybody develop it or open it? Doesn't make sense. Yeah. I haven't been back into Combs Ferry because I don't have a four-wheel drive. They say you can still get in there if you've got a good four-wheel drive. Now, what was the belief of, of that? Was it similar disappearances? I found or? Nothing, nothing on Combs Ferry. No reason. I uh, sent an email to the Army Corps of Engineers. It went unanswered. I inquired about Combs Ferry and why it was shut down. Nothing. In fact, uh, there is a public fishing area down the road from Combs Ferry uh, that is still access. People can go there and fish during the day. But at dusk, they close a huge steel gate and padlock it. And you we can't saw even that, get it. like at Ha Ha Tonka. Some, yeah. of the, some of the state parks do practice well, that. Yeah. But there are but dog man, there were dogman stories around Ha Ha Tonka. Ah, they are everywhere. And oh. I mentioned earlier that I wanted to get back to the national parks thing, and I will. Uh, oh yeah. Oh I, yes, the four one one. Yeah, the missing four one one, and the David Polites uh, stories. He's collected so many of these disappearances in and around national parks, and this is where we can put our tinfoil hats on, 
and uh, jump down the rabbit hole with me a little bit. But if you listen long, if you listen to this story, it's going to make sense. So well, we, we did an entire podcast on the missing 411. We Our listeners are at least familiar with it. Well, bear with me for a minute as I kind of, kind of jump down the rabbit hole. Uh, but trust me, it's going to make sense. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, president of the United States, president Teddy Roosevelt, before he was president, he was a big, big game hunter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he wrote a book called the wilderness hunter book still available. You can go to Amazon and buy Teddy Roosevelt's book, the wilderness hunter. One of the first written accounts of a Bigfoot attack is in that book. Teddy Roosevelt recorded a story supposedly told to him by a trapper named Bauman that took place where a Bigfoot killed a trapper. Uh, it's called it's called the Bauman Incident. It's in the Wilderness Hunter. Teddy Roosevelt documented it. However, I've talked to a number of people, and you and I both know getting details out of people that live out in the country about a story is like pulling it's teeth. Rough. You better know them or and be know related them well. to them, some connection. So yeah. what do you think the odds of some mountain man sitting down with Teddy Roosevelt and telling him down to the last detail? Yeah, slim to none. Okay, slim to none. Right, you're with me on this? Yes. The school of thought is growing that Bauman was Teddy Roosevelt. This Bigfoot attack happened to Teddy Roosevelt, but he had political aspirations and he didn't want to come forth and oh, say yeah. he was attacked by a monster in the woods. Might okay. not look so good to some of the uh, yeah. so electoral votes. <laughs> we already know, we already know for a fact Teddy Roosevelt documented this incident, the Bauman incident, and we firmly believe Teddy Roosevelt was Bauman that he that he personally had this Bigfoot twist. attack story. Okay, so flash forward, Teddy Roosevelt becomes president of the United States. What's one of the first things Teddy did? National parks. He created the National Park Service, cordoning off millions of acres that cannot be developed and hunters are not allowed in and restricted access. There are parts of Yellowstone you're not allowed to go. Right. There are parts of Denali you're not allowed to go. It's almost like he's trying to uh, protect or hide. So we've got a president that we know documented a Bigfoot attack story who then creates the National Park Service to keep people out of certain areas. And then you look at the David Pilates missing 411 and oh, these are the areas where so many people are going missing. Coincidence? Uh, I don't, most likely not. Yeah. I think there's a huge correlation. I believe the U.S. government has known the existence of Bigfoot and Dogman type creatures. I believe they've known it for a very long time. And I think the reason they won't come forward is because they would then be culpable. There, there would be a huge amount of blame coming down on the, on the government for if you knew these creatures are out there, then you share responsibility for the, all these people that are missing. Well, I was going to say. Every they, disappearance, every mutilation, every, mm-hmm. pro, any property damage in those areas. I mean, yeah, they'd be on the hook for all of that. As, as right. we all know, they, the government did come forward here in 2000, or, uh, 2020 that the uh, UFOs mm-hmm. were real. That was a shocker enough. But now, yeah, you're, if you come forward and say you know about this in national parks where we're trying to get thousands, if not millions of people to go to, yeah. and then there's the disappearances, that's a, a, that's a stronger blow than saying, yeah, there's UFOs out there. Even. And I'm not saying every person that ever went missing in a national park was abducted by Bigfoot or Dogman. I'm not saying It's that. easy to fall off. Cliffs, right. bluffs, exactly. break but your leg, are, get the, lost. Those are not the cases that David Pilates profiles. No. He only profiles the ones that went missing under mysterious circumstances, like that one case of the little kid that went missing and they found the kid with no shoes on, 
several miles away in a swamp and his clothes were clean. You tell me how a toddler made, made it through miles of swamp without getting dirty. And no shoes. And no shoes. When we did the national park disappearances, that was what we tried to stick to was the ones that were hard to explain. People that did reappear miles away. Or or, just never reappeared at all. Yeah. You, um, you, you couple that with the fact that they bring in tracking dogs that are trained to track people. The dogs refuse to track. Mm-hmm. If they find a piece of the, if they find any remains at all, it's found in an area they've searched many times before. Very uh, typical. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just those weird cases like that. Uh, and that's the ones that the missing 411, the Can-Am missing project that they profile. And there's just too many of them to say it's bear attacks or it's, it's mountain lion attacks because when when it, when wild animals like wolves or coyotes or a bear attack and kill somebody, they they're not clean. They right. leave a mess. Well, I was going to blood say, and clothes. I was going to say a lot of these incidences that he covers. It's like if they do find anything, like the clothing's not shredded. It's not right. bloody. It's sometimes just like, it's just sometimes like, it's folded and, mm-hmm. and put away. Like they're going to come back and get it, well, or you know something. I, I along think those we lines. talked about one where the guy was found basically overlooking a camp mm-hmm. that they had searched. And his body was in such a, a state of, of of decay that they didn't even account for the amount of time he'd been gone or something like that. Right. The the, the missing four one cases just just absolutely fascinate me because there's such odd circumstances involved with these disappearances. And I liked your link that you were talking about. If you overlay that map with the underground cave system that we know to exist. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, there's probably some we don't know oh, to exist. Oh, there's lots. I mean, look at all the caves in Missouri. We're oh, finding new ones all the time. Yeah. There was one summer, uh, I belonged to a small spelunking group, and, and literally we went into over a hundred caves in one summer. We're not talking five years. One summer, we went into a hundred different caves within driving distance of Lebanon, Missouri. So, Well, uh, look at the one just south of here, uh, Smittle Cave. Mm-hmm. Remember Smittle Cave? Oh, yes. If you look up on the Missouri Conservation website, they talk about the endangered brown bat, uh, the Missouri brown bat, and that the Smittle cam- family donated the land to protect these bats. That's BS. <laughs> I remember when that happened, the Smittle camp family was ran off that land by Missouri Department of Conservation. And if you go out to that cave, the front of that cave looks like Fort freaking Knox. Yes. It is. It, it literally it, has welded jail-like yeah, gates on it. Th- that's not just to keep somebody out. We actually are. A chain link and a padlock will keep most people out. Our group got permission from the sheriff's department, and we were able to go and unlock that and actually go. It, it took a lot of paperwork and a lot of time, but we actually went through there. It, it, was, it was quite interesting. Quite interesting. I, I've been in Smittle Cave, but I didn't go through all the. <laughs> that was a long story. There a little time less paperwork that, on little, that. One. There was less paperwork involved, and let's just say I wasn't a cop at the time. I was a much younger man, younger and dumber in many occasions. So before we got in here, we were talking, and and this is going to be off topic. I know we talked about the dog man quite a bit here, but uh, I asked if you'd had any strange uh, encounters during your time with law enforcement. So. Um, you said you had a couple of stories mm-hmm. there. Oh, one, I, uh, I was a patrol officer in a small town. Probably shouldn't say the name of the town because my old chief might get a little pissed at me, <laughs> but let's just say it's a very small town in rural Missouri. And I was working there and, uh, was pulling an overnight shift and I was out in, in one of the chargers and, uh, the, the, just down the, the road from the main intersection in town, uh, I, there was a spot I like to sit cause you would catch people that would just blow that stop sign. 
And um, I'd sat out there many times during the day and never even noticed anything. But I was there middle of the night, two, probably two o'clock in the morning. And I pulled over into that little spot and it was directly across the street from this really old Civil War era cemetery. And during the day, I never paid one bit of attention to it. But suddenly at two o'clock in the morning, when you're sitting next to a cemetery, the creep factor goes up a little bit. <laughs> but I wasn't really paying too much attention to it. And I uh, I was sitting there just kind of playing with my NDT, my mobile data terminal, and uh, just kind of keeping an eye on that intersection. I hadn't seen a car for like 20 minutes. So I'm just kind of sitting there not paying any attention to much anything other than playing. I think I was actually playing solitaire on my MDT. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I just kind of got this feeling I needed to look to my left. And this was a summer evening. It was it was still hot and humid at you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. You mm -hmm. know those Missouri nights oh, yeah. where the humidity is about 7,000%. Uh, so I was just sitting there, and it was a hot summer night. And I just looked to my left and looked across at that old cemetery. And there was a wall of fog rolling across that cemetery. And it is much too hot for fog. But there's nonetheless a big patch of fog coming across that, that cemetery. And the more I looked at it, the more I became convinced I could see eyes looking at me from that fog. And I was like tapping my watch. Well, hey, would you look at the time? <laughs> I need to be somewhere else right now. Anywhere but here. Yeah. So I went back to the 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 uh the office and, and sat in the office for a little while. I didn't go back out for a bit. That, that kind of shook me up. And another time, uh, this was uh, at a different place. This was when I was uh, a, a reserve deputy. Um, I pulled up and noticed a light on in a, in a building. And, you know, it's not unusual to see light on in a house. Uh, but then it occurred to me that that building was condemned and had no power to it. And I could see somebody moving around on upper floor in the light. And when I opened my car door, the light went out. And I, so I flipped on my flashlight and I went and looked in the door and there was no staircase anymore. It had fallen down. Wow. So there was no way I was getting up there to find out if there was somebody up there. Plus, I was afraid if you sneezed real hard, the building would come down. <laughs> there was no way somebody got up there. I walked around the, uh, the entire perimeter of the building. There was no ladder. There was no fire escape. And I got back out there and I got in the car and I'm looking at that window and it's dark and I start up the car and I start driving off and it come back on. Hmm. And this was not like somebody up there with a flashlight. This looked like the actual power in the room came on. Wow. And I was like, yeah, I'm not putting this in a report. And I just kept going. <laughs> like you're dumb enough to be up in the roof of that place with no staircase and no way down where a decent sized fart will bring the building around. <laughs> good luck. Yeah. Good luck to you. But th those are my two, what I would consider paranormal, paranormal incidents. Uh, but I, I did have some weird crap happen when I worked at the hospital and it was, it was just, you know, hospitals are creepy anyway, yes, especially yeah. at night. A lot of energy there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, we should save those for another time. Cause I've been flapping my jab, jaws for a long time now. Um, if you want to plug your website and your YouTube and stuff again. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. My name is DA Roberts. Uh, I write primarily horror, but I write sci-fi and fantasy as well. Uh, you can find all of my books. Um, a lot of it's cryptid horror. Some of it's zombie horror. You can find it at daroberts.net. Uh, and if you go to YouTube and look up DA Roberts author, you can find my YouTube channel where the video that I mentioned earlier about the possible dog man is on that on that channel it's and be I also the first thing I do when I get home to be honest. <laughs> yes. I also have my my live twice a week show Wednesdays and Saturday nights called DAX Machina where we talk about cryptids and UFOs and horror and sci-fi and we'll br I have authors that I interview from time to time and 
and we talk, you know, Bigfoot and Dogman and Loch Ness Monster and Chupacabra or, and the the rare Taco Bell version, the Chalupa Cabra. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like right up our alley. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for joining us. I think it's been really interesting. Like I said, a, a view into the, the Dogman phenomenon that I was not aware was so widespread, to be honest. Always happy to have you back around the table, whether it be a D&D table or a podcast table. And uh, thank you so much for taking time to come out and visit with us. And uh, we hope our listeners enjoyed yet another example of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, final records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, <laughs> using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.